0: Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be talking about Revelation chapter 4. And in this section of the book of Revelation, we've completed the message to the seven churches. And... We're going to come into the throne of God. The vision
1: begins here. This is where we turn apocalyptic, and this is visionary, and now we get into a great message, and we're going to start with the main character. So this is an appropriate place to start the vision, Mike. Yeah. So
0: this door that's opened, the word in the Greek is a double door. It's a grand door. This isn't just a regular door, but it's a, a... double door of a mansion. And I think this is talking about coming into the place where God is. And so this whole chapter is uh, John being introduced into the throne room, the heavenly throne room. And the first thing he's going to notice is the council, uh, the council of these divine beings. And there's some interesting characters in this text. It's only 11 verses, but it's loaded, isn't it, Bryce? Yeah. You've got four beasts and 24 elders and lightning and thunder and crystal. And to me, I really would suggest, especially if you're going to teach this, I would suggest that you read Ezekiel chapter 1, because in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel, who is a priest, is brought into the presence of God, and he sees some similar things. In fact, uh, there's an artist, and I don't know who he is or who, who she is, but this artist did a really good job depicting this scene. And I'm going to put the picture in the show notes. It's a fascinating picture. I'm showing it to Bryce right now of this uh, these wheels with eyes and these four critters and the firmament, this crystal with lightning and rainbows and the throne. And a lot of the stuff in Ezekiel 1 is in Revelation 4. And so uh, just before we started r- recording, I talked to Bryce and I said, what do you do with this? I, I have lots of places I like to go. And sometimes I go to places where probably you, the listener, are thinking, What is he talking about? So I apologize. I like that Bryce makes it more, he just makes it more normal and understandable. And so as I was talking to Bryce before, he made some really good comments about knowing who this person is and knowing the character of God. So um, I'm going to get weird, but not yet, because I want you to keep listening. So I'm going to turn over to Bryce and say, Bryce, what do you you make of this chapter?
1: I, I love chapter four. This is just a beautiful look into Heavenly Father's house. If you were to walk into my office, you'd learn a lot about me just by looking around my office. I think that's true of almost anyone. If you were to walk into my home, you would learn a whole lot about the Dunford family simply by walking into the Dunford home. Um, Our decorations, you would learn a lot. Well, John gets to come up into Heavenly Father's home. He walks into his house, and he gets to look around, and he gets to see the man who lives there. Now, just a few chapters from now, we're going to talk death and destruction. A lot of people are going to be destroyed. But before we ever get to death and destruction, we need to know the man behind it. We need to see into his home, what's important to him. What trophies are on the shelves? What books are on the shelves? How does he arrange his furniture? You learn a whole lot about a person by going into their home. Well, Chapter 4 is a glimpse into Heavenly Father's home. And John sees three things. Um, I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, round about the throne. What fascinates me is the first thing he notices are the chairs. He notices the chairs, and they seem to be in a circle. And he learns so much about Heavenly Father that would put the chairs in his home in a circle. That God doesn't sit at the head of the table. He puts the chairs in a circle. And then he notices 24 elders, clothed in white raiment, and on their heads are crowns of gold. So what we find in Heavenly Father's home are exalted people. He's filled his home with his saved children. And then jumping down to verse 6, he sees a, a sea of glass. And this is where Joseph Smith becomes very crucial, because section 77, Joseph was able to ask, what's the sea of glass? And Joseph was told, it's the earth in its sanctified state. Which is a tremendous message. This earth will not end its life in a charred ball of destruction. Yes, there will be fire involved, but that fire will be purifying. It will end its life as a sea of glass. Perfected, beautified, made perfect, filled with lights and perfections. So Heavenly Father has saved children in his house. He has saved worlds. Heavenly Father has a plan for the salvation of this planet. You want a fun scripture journey, just go through the scriptures and look for the earth. Look for Heavenly Father's plan for the earth. It is fascinating that Heavenly Father cares about this planet. You talk about environmentalists. Heavenly Father cares about this planet, and he has a plan to save this planet. And then in verse 4, or verse 6, John sees animals. He sees four beasts. Now, these are different than the beasts in Daniel. And Joseph Smith gives a wonderful little description in his teachings about these animals. And he says the following. Speaking of these animals, he says, I suppose John saw there a thou, or beings from a thousand forms. That had been saved from 10,000 times 10,000 earths like this. Strange beasts of which we have no conception. All might be seen in heaven. The grand secret was to show John what there was in heaven. John learned that God glorifies himself by saving all that his hands had made. I'm going to repeat that. The kind of God that we're talking about. Our Heavenly Father. The one behind the destruction that's coming. "...glorifies himself by saving all that his hands had made. Whether they be beasts or fowls or fishes or men, he will glorify himself with them. John heard the words of the beasts giving glory to God and understood them. And God who made the beasts could understand every language spoken by them. The four beasts were four of the most noble animals that had filled the measure of their creation and had been saved from other worlds because they were perfect." They were like angels in their sphere. We are not told where they come from, and I do not know. But they were seen and heard by John praising and glorifying God. Heavenly Father's house is filled with his creations, worlds, children, and animals. Now, I I would like to, if you'll just turn to section 77, because I'd love to just read one of those insights where John, you know, the question is, what what do the four animals mean? So I'm reading from Doctrine and Covenants section 77, and the question is, um, what are we to under- this is verse 2, what are we to understand by the four beasts spoken of in the same verse? They are figurative expressions represent- used by Re- John the Revelator in describing heaven, the paradise of God, the happiness of man and of beasts and of creeping things and of the fowls of the air meaning our Heavenly Father saves bugs. He glorifies in His creations. In the next question, are they limited or do they represent? Joseph answers this question. He sees four actual animals that represent all saved animals. They are limited to four individual beasts which were shown to John to represent the glory of the classes of beings in their destined order or sphere or crea- of creation in the enjoyment of their eternal felicity. Our Heavenly Father glories in saving His creations, in bringing them into His presence, in, in exalting them, he exalted, he's gonna exalt our earth into a sea of glass. He's gonna exalt his children that will obey his commandments and bring them into his, his, his presence and give them all that he has. He exalts animals. He's worried about the eternal felicity of every animal that walks this planet. He has a plan to save his creatures. We just have to see him. We have to see this being who loves his creations, and we have to see them in their exalted state. I love the idea of animals talking and moving, because in Revelation, animals speak, and they're filled with eyes and wings, which Joseph Smith in section 77 goes on to say represent their ability to move and that they are filled with light and knowledge, um, to see a glorified, exalted animal in the celestial kingdom, I think, would just astound us. But the idea here is that Heavenly Father loves his creations. He is not a God of destruction. He is not a God who strikes us out. <clears throat> Sometimes we think Heavenly Father is just giving, you know, all, we need, all he needs is any little idea to call us out like an umpire. I had a daughter who once, I'd put her to bed, and she'd say, Dad, you forgot to read me a story. So I'd read her a story. Dad, you forgot to give me a drink of water. So I'd give her a drink of water. Dad, I forgot to go to the bathroom. She would finally give in, go to sleep, when she ran out of reasons to stay up. And I thought, so many people view God as this God who, you give me any old reason to destroy you, or to punish you, or to send you to a punishment, and I'll do it, and I'll only save you if I run out of reasons to to, to not destroy you. And that is not Heavenly Father. And you've got to see John, Revelation chapter 4. You've got to see him in his glory. You've got to see a man who loves his creations with all his soul, and he delights in saving them, and he wants them into his kingdom. John goes into Heavenly Father's house, and he sees animals and worlds, which means mountains and seas and rivers and oceans he sees them brought into heavenly father's presence and then he sees his children and then he gets to see this beautiful image at the very end of of john chapter 4 or revelation 4 we see these 24 elders which represent his saved children and they take the crowns off of their heads and they cast them at the feet of the Savior and the Father, as if to acknowledge, I am here because of thy goodness. And I think that's indicative of the kind of people that will make it into his kingdom, the kind of people who recognize who he is and the role that he has played. But before we ever turn the pages and get into the destruction that is coming in our day as the earth is cleansed, as the earth goes from a celestial to a terrestrial state, and there will be destruction— We just have to see Heavenly Father in his glory. We have to see a man who just cherishes every creation he has. And he has a plan for even creeping things and birds and whales and mountains and waterfalls and beautiful plants. Heavenly Father fills his home with his creations. And I just love that. We've got to see him as that being. I think that
0: chapter 4 and chapter 5 need to be read together. I don't know if 4 really describes this well, but I think if you read it together with the other chapter, the person on the throne is the father, and the son receives a book, which we'll get to in chapter 5, but he receives a book from the father that no one's worthy to open. And so this is a father and a son, but it doesn't really explicitly say it in the fourth chapter. And you have the 24 elders around the throne. And typically, and Bryce, you you nailed this. I mean, you hit all the points. You talked about section 77 and what the four beasts represent. And and when Joseph asked the Lord, he says, are they literal or are they figurative? And the answer is, well, they're both. And so what do we do with this? We read the same thing in Ezekiel. And they're very interesting critters, right? They have a face in verse 7 of a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. And... These could represent the stages of man, for from spirit, man, to mortal, calf, or the ox, uh, to, um, well, to lion, kingship, a millennial time period, and then finally to eagle, celestial. So I, I like this as a progression of how we progress. I also like it as, and, and this is, like I said, take it for what it's worth, but in a lot of the religious texts of the ancient world, God had these creatures that were of a couple different animals and they were guardians and they would guard his throne. Now, you, you and I all know God doesn't need guardians, right? But as a symbol, it's pretty cool stuff. And so if you ever, I remember when I was a paper boy as a kid and you come up to this really rich house and what, 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 what critters do they have right there carved out of stone, right? And where does that come from? I remember this guy had these two lions and I thought, how much do those lions cost that this guy has carved out of stone? And this comes out of antiquity. And the ancients looked at sacred spaces had these guardians. And so some of that's going on here, I think. But once again, Bryce, I don't know. I don't know what this is, but it's, it's in there. And so uh, it's highly symbolic, these four beasts. And the 24 elders, you know, Joseph asked the Lord, you know, who are these 24 elders? In the 77 section of Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord says that they're, uh, verse 5, we're to understand that these elders whom John saw were elders who had been faithful in the work of the ministry and were dead. And they belong to the seven churches. And so, like you said, there are these celestial beings, uh, the divine council. And first and second temple religion and early Israelite re- religion changed regarding who God is and how we conceive of God. And so I'm going to give big picture, but just know that when we do Old Testament, we'll see some of this. And then in a few weeks, when we do Book of Mormon, we're going to see Lehi stand and in contradistinction to Second Temple Israelite religion. And what I mean by that is this. In in First Temple Israelite religion, there was a council of gods and also female deities. There was a a wife of God. And it was El, and it would be his consort, and that would be Yahweh, and the Bnei Elohim, or the sons of God. And that's generic. It means sons and daughters. And it was this cast of people that were people, and they were divine. And the counsel of God was changed in, and we don't know when, but probably about the time of Josiah, and it starts with what we call the Deuteronomistic Reform, and they changed the way that they viewed God. And I just want to read this one verse, but it's it's really it really is significant, and it's Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy, we believe, and this is in scholarship, we believe that this was a text that was a uh, textualized probably shortly before Lehi's time. And it's cast back as if Moses said these words, but from the very first chapter of Deuteronomy, from the very first verse, we read that there's a problem where the author of Deuteronomy one says, these are the words which Moses said when he was on the other side of the Jordan. Now, if you read that carefully and you understand what's going on in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is written as if Moses said these words on the east side of the river. But if you read the first couple of verses of Deuteronomy chapter one, the author says, these be the words that Moses said when he was on the other side. And I hope I'm making sense with this. But what, what I'm trying to say is the scribe who wrote that is writing that on the west side of the Jordan River after Moses is dead. This is a repackaging of ideas of Moses. And if you've ever read Exodus, there's all these references to God speaking with Moses face to face and the elders of Israel meeting God, coming into the council of God, God's writing on the stone tablets, which a lot of times we think five commandments on one tablet and five on the other. And I like that, but I don't think that's a proper understanding of it. In the ancient Near East, when you made covenants, there were two copies made one for you and one for the person you are covenanting with. So the two tablets are Yahweh's, he's keeping his, his side, and then you're going to take yours. And so that's the, the the two tablets. But look in Deuteronomy 4, it says this in verse 12, and it and it reads different in what I call the JPS version, which is from the Jewish Publications Society. It's even more distinct, but here it is in the King James. And the Lord spake unto you, Deuteronomy 4, 12, Out of the midst of the fire, you heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude, only heard a voice. Verse 15. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for you saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. The point of Deuteronomy 4 is God can't be seen. Why? Well, He has no form. The Lord our God is one, and He isn't corporeal as he's portrayed in Exodus, as he's portrayed in other literature in the in the Exodus narrative. And according to the Deuteronomist, one of the changes made theologically is that, well, you can be brought into the council, but you certainly can't see God. He can't be seen. And so Laman and Lemuel, who come out of this tradition, I'm going to call Laman and Lemuel Deuteronomists, they freak out at their dad when their dad says, I've seen God. And we'll cover this, price when we get to 1 Nephi, but that's what Lehi is doing. He's like, not only did I see God, but there's elders of of divine beings and lehi gets a book very similar to the book of revelation and so john stands in the tradition of first temple israelite religion there's a god there's a throne he's corporeal he has a he has a visage i've seen him and there's other celestial beings and so this notion of a divine council is all over the place in the text so many places but i love first nephi one i love psalm 82 and 89 standing in the council I want to read uh, Jeremiah 23:18 really quick. Jeremiah 23:18 For who has stood in the counsels of the Lord and has perceived and heard his word? Who hath marked his word and heard it? Verse 22 But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my word, then they should have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. Uh, the word counsel is sowed to enter into God's presence, to God's counsel, and to to see and hear what he would have the prophet go and then proclaim. That's what prophets do. So it's in 1 Kings 22, Jeremiah 23, Amos 3, 7. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret, his sowed, his counsel to his servants, the prophets. Uh, Lehi stands in this tradition. If you read Helaman 10, we, we read the same thing. So this is classic, coming into the council, first israelite religion and it's john doing it now there's a story i'm going to try to find it to put it in the show notes but it's a story bryce of of hebrew j grant and he was called to be an apostle and he was young and he was feeling like he just wasn't worthy or wasn't maybe mature enough to be an apostle and in this in this experience he was able to see into heaven and he saw his dad, who had passed away, Jedediah Morgan Grant, and other leaders of the church. And they were sitting and they were talking about who should be called as an apostle. And he was, his name came up. And he realized right then that he was called because...
1: There was a big picture.
0: Yeah, it wasn't him. It was this decision of this council up in heaven. I, I don't know how to say it really well with the words that I'm trying to use, but there's this important message, Bryce... That there is a God, that he is aware of us, that they debate, that they counsel, that they talk about these things. And I love how you prod out how it's a circle. We're, and this is this is a pattern for leadership. This is a pattern for how to
1: run our families, the church, how to be successful. The very first thing John notices was the chairs. Yeah. I think that's significant. He walks into Heavenly Father's house and he notices the chairs because that sets a tone of who this man is. And how he reveres us and how does he, where the position we hold in his heart, that he puts us in a circle with him. It's just, and you have to see that. You have to see that God is behind this because we're about to cleanse the earth and we're going to see death and destruction. And we're going to see a lot of people crying out in pain. And you say, well, where is God? But you have to see that he's a loving being who's trying to save his children and he has a plan. And his plan calls for repentance of his children. If they don't repent, then they have to suffer. But he he is a loving, tender being who counsels and tries to get us to do what is right, but won't force us.
0: There's an interesting word that there's one word in this whole chapter that really conveys what you've been talking about, Bryce, and it's in verse 11. And I don't like the King James Version. I, I, wish, I, I, I wish every verse could have... And I guess that's why you're so good at this, and I'm trying to get better. The electronic scriptures are so good because you can put stuff in notes. And I just think our language is just so clunky. And I don't know if there's a perfect language, but the word is pleasure, and it's in verse 11. And and look in the verse. It says,
1: This is what the 24 say when they throw their crowns to the Father. Yeah,
0: they say, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And I think that word can be really misused. I think some people could read it and say, oh, so God's just messing with us. This is just for his pleasure. And everything you've been saying, Bryce, leads me to this word. And the word is thelema. And it's a Greek word, of course, because the New Testament is written in Greek. That's the original language. And the word means a choice, a purpose, a decree, a determination. And once again, we come back to Joseph Smith, Moses 139. I mean, Moses 139 is that word. God has determined, he's chosen to create us, and the purposes of his creation are for us to be like him. And I just find that amazing. And I, I, I just think pleasure isn't the best translation, but I guess that's why I'm trying to
1: learn these words, because I think that once we get into it it just really describes who he is and this being christmas time we always celebrate the birth of jesus we've got to connect the birth of jesus to god's determination to that desire to bless us he sent his son into this wicked world knowing what this world would do to that man that boy born in the in the stable he sent His Son into this, this world not to condemn the world, not to destroy the world, but to save the world. Clearly, He loves us. Clearly, He intends to save us. He is determined to bring about our eternal life. And as we celebrate the birth of Jesus this Christmas season, we need to remember that it's not just the birth of Jesus that we're celebrating. It's, the, it's God's gift of Christ. It's the fact that you're worth it. You're worth it me sending my son to this world. And that's a very different picture of God, that he, he created all of these things to bring about our happiness. Um, he, that's the being we need to understand before we ever go any further in the book of Revelation. We need to go into his counsels and see him.
0: That's excellent. So with that, we will close out chapter 4, and we'll see you next time.